theyeshiva.net. This is what I want to address with you this evening. When we talk about cultivating a positive attitude during what's certainly a challenging time. And I'll tell you how I want to address it from an interesting angle. In a few days, this Shabbat is going to be Yutes Kislev. The 19th of Kislev is the yard site of the Magid of Mizrich, the Rebbe Rebbe, Rabbi Doiv Ber, the famous successor of the Baal Shem Tov, founder of the Hasidic movement, the Magid Rev Ber, Rabbi Doiv Ber succeeded him. And from him came all the branches of Hasidism throughout the generations, came from the Magid students. He passed away on Yutet Kislev, Yat Kislev, Tov Kuflamet Gimel, 1772. This year it's on Shabbos. That year was on a Tuesday. The very same day is also the anniversary of another lovely, fascin- powerful event in Jewish history in 1798. The Magid of Mezrich had a student known as the Balatanya. The Balatanya, Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, was the founder of Chabad and the author of Shulchan Aruch Harav, one of the greatest codes of Jewish law written in Jewish history. The brilliance and the definitions and the definitive terminology, and the way the Shulchan Aruch Harav articulates halacha is unprecedented. Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi was thrown into czarist imprisonment on the accusation of treason because of a very sad, the very powerful opposition that existed at that time between the Hasidim and those who opposed them. And on Yutas Kislev, the 19th of Kislev, he was emancipated, he was liberated. He was exonerated and he was given permission to continue teaching, continue spreading the Torah, the teachings of Kabbalah, of Hasidus, of Jewish spirituality, Jewish mysticism, the soul of Torah, which invigorated millions of Jews in Eastern Europe during the 18th and the 19th century. And of course, during the subsequent generations until this very day. In fact, the Magad of Mizrich, before he died, he told Rabbi Shnei Zalman, his youngest student, Yutas Kislev is our celebration. Yutas Kislev is Unzer Yoim Hilul. It's our anniversary, meaning... He, it would be the day that he would pass away, and it would be the day, decades later, when his student, Rabbi Shnezam, would be emancipated from prison. And one of his key gifts that he gave the world was the Book of Tanya. The Book of Tanya is a small book, but it's really an encyclopedic, general description of what the Hasidic perspective on life is, how to serve God according to the teachings of the Baal Shem Tev and the Magid and the Balatanya, based on the inner mystical spiritual dimensions of Judaism. And it's a very elaborate and comprehensive, even though it's concise and brief, speaking about the structure of the human soul, the spiritual anatomy of a person, the science of the soul. Just like we have science and physics and biology and medicine, which is the science of the body or the science of the world, the chemistry of the world. We have the science of the soul. Tanya is the science of the soul. How does the soul work? What does the soul need? What does the soul yearn for? He discusses over there the purpose of creation, the relationship between God and the world, the unity, the oneness of life. Very, very powerful, powerful book. But there is a fascinating and mysterious statement in the introduction to Tanya. The Bala Tanya writes that he didn't want to write a book because face-to-face conversation is much more effective because then you could listen to the person and talk to the person and you can address your responses to the person. When you write a book, it's more abstract. But he says he didn't have a choice. He won't be able to see all the people any longer. And so many people are coming. And people also forget what he told them. So therefore, he's writing a book. And he says, I'm going to include here all the answers to all the questions. And you read this and you wonder, how could the Balatanya write? I included all the answers to all the questions. That's impossible. It's a small book, 53 chapters, and they're not very long. It's a, very, it's a small book. The Tanya today has five sections, but just the first section is 53 chapters. It's loaded, it's intense, it's heavy. You could learn it for many decades. But to say that in 53 chapters you included all of the answers to all of the questions? How can a human being say that? How is that even possible? You know how many questions there are in life? You know how many dilemmas there are in life? You know how many struggles there are in life? The answer... I'm going to introduce with a little anecdote. They say that there was a Jew who once came into a library, a big library, uh, came into a Barnes & Noble store. I don't know if they have Barnes & Noble by you. But one of these very famous uh, bookstores, they're called Barnes & Noble, comes into the store and he's looking for the self-help section. So he goes over to the woman standing there at the desk and he says, where is the self-help section? So she says... If I answer you, it will be a contradiction in terms. 
and it will be defeating the purpose. So I can't answer you. In many ways, Lahavdil, self-help books is a genre known in our times. But in many ways, I would say that the Tanya was the first such book written in history. Why? The premise of the Tanya is in the opening of chapter 2. The soul of a Jew is a piece of God. Ah, If that's the case, you have the answers to all the questions. Because the Al-Tirebbe, the Balatanya believes, you don't need somebody else for the answers. You have all the answers inside of you, because your soul is a piece of Hashem. You are a fragment of infinity. You are an ambassador of the divine in this world. You are a piece of heaven. At your core, you are infinite. You are a reflection of infinity in this world. You are a manifestation of the divine light in this world. At your core, you're wholesome, you're confident, you're powerful, you're invincible. You are a shliach. You are a messenger, an ambassador of the Ribbono Shalalam of God in this world. Your soul, in fact, is considered a chelik elikamimal, so to speak, a piece of Hashem, kevayachal, like a fragment of the Shechina, a fragment of the divine. So you have all the answers to all the questions, because all the answers to all the questions lay in you. If I can just tune into my neshama, if I can just move away, excavate my soul, remove the rubble and the layers that cover up and eclipse my truest identity, my true holiness, ah, I'll find the answers. So you say, yeah, but I have anger, and I have depression, and I have jealousy, and I have hatred, and I have insecurity, and I have fear, and I have melancholy, and I feel dejected, and I'm dealing with trauma, and I'm dealing with pressures, and I'm dealing with stress, and I'm dealing with anxiety. Should I go on? Whatever it is, I know, I'm dealing with it. But if I can tune in deeper, if I can dig a little deeper, or a lot deeper, I will discover that my core is infinite. My core is a piece of Hashem. It's indestructible. And no mistakes in the world, no sins in the world, no trauma in the world, no abuse in the world, can destroy it, can eliminate it, can obliterate it. It can be covered up. It can be covered up by layers. It can be covered up by dense layers, which can eclipse my inner light. But the journey of Tanya is a journey towards a your truest, deepest, most authentic self that remains untarnished, unscathed, and unsoiled. Rabbi Lena, I hope you're translating all three terms. And untouchable. And when I can believe in that space and tune into that space, I will have the answers to all the questions. Because the questions are all coming from my inability to really appreciate who I am and what is inside of me. Now, it's not always easy to get there. Sometimes there's trauma that sits in my body and doesn't let me get there because the body holds the score in the title of a famous book. Sometimes the trauma sits in my brain. Sometimes it sits in my neck, in my back, in my stomach, and I have to release it. Sometimes there's a lot of anger that's pent up. Sometimes there's a lot of frustration, a lot of disappointment. Sometimes there's a lot of toxicity and lots of pain and lots of... It's all, that's true. And that all comes from what the Tanya calls the Nefesh HaBahamit, which is the animal inside the person that's just trying to survive and develops survival skills. And they're not bad skills. They're just survival skills. Like every animal develops survival skills. We also have an animal, and that animal also develops survival skills. And we squirrel our way through life trying to survive. And don't blame yourself, because sometimes those survival skills allowed you to survive as a child. Yes, I was like a little animal or a little insect or a little fish or reptile or bird that felt threatened and insecure and I had to crawl up and retreat into my cocoon and that's how I developed my survival skills and here I am today. Don't blame yourself, says the Tanya, but don't become a victim. Don't subjugate yourself and don't surrender to mediocrity and feel that forever you have to be trapped in this little petty orbit that defines you. You have infinite potential, but for this, you have to know what is inside of you. That's why the Balatanya can say, I can give you a book that has all the answers to all the questions. You know why? Because the Alter Rebbe only gives you one answer. And that answer includes the answers to all the questions. And that answer is, look 
inside of yourself. Identify your truest core. All the questions that we have in life come from narrow vision. They come from tunnel vision. They come from the fact that I feel weak. I feel lonely. I feel impoverished. I feel depressed. I feel scared. I feel detached. I have attachment disorder. I don't feel connected to anything. I'm frightened of my shadow. I'm frightened of losing my relationship. I'm frightened of being stepped on. I'm frightened of non-existence. But the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya teaches you, he says, do you know who you are? You're never lonely. You are always one with God. Hashem is always with you. As we say in Psalms 23, even when I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear evil because you are with me. That's the famous Psalm chapter 23, the Lord is my shepherd. There's a lovely anecdotal story that Pavarotti, the great opera singer, gave a beautiful rendition of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he gave and he presented such a beautiful musical rendition of this psalm of King David. And when he finished, he received a standing ovation. And then an old Bubba, an old Jewish grandmother gets up and says, Mr. Pavarotti, do you mind if I give my own rendition of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd? He says, go ahead. And she begins her rendition, but I hate to say this, she couldn't carry a tune. She didn't know the words well. She didn't know the lyrics well. Her voice was not the best voice in the world. But she was doing it and she put in her soul into it and it was so sincere, people started to cry. And when she finished, there was not a dry eye in the auditorium and Mr. Pavarotti, the anecdote goes, turns to her and says, Ma'am, I don't understand. I did a most exquisite rendition of this psalm, The Lord is My Shepherd. People gave me a thundering applause, but nobody was crying. You broke every rule. You can't carry a tune. You didn't know the words. Your voice is, has what to be desired. But everybody, everybody was crying. Why? And the woman looks at Mr. Pavarotti and she looks at the crowd and she said, My dear Mr. Pavarotti, you may know the psalm, but I know the shepherd. And that makes all the difference. You may know the psalm. You may have the professional skills to be able to present this psalm in the most brilliant and talented way. But I know the shepherd. I have an intimate relationship with the shepherd. Every single person has that relationship. And not because you're necessarily perfect and impeccable and flawless. Even if I made mistakes. Even if I made big mistakes. Your soul is always a chelek elekami mal. We say every morning, elekai neshama shenasatabi tahoi The soul that you have given me is pure. There were those. There was a rabbi who said, take out the word he. Just write neshama shenasatabi tahoi The soul that you gave me was pure. Now it's not pure. Now it may be dirty. But most prayer books left in the word he, which means not only it was pure, it is pure. Because no matter what happens to me in my life, whatever matter I do or somebody else does, willingly or unwillingly, your soul is unscathed, untouched, untarnished, unsoiled. It's not defected. There's no such a thing as a defective soul. There could be, God forbid, a defective body. The guy sometimes do something that is defective. But the soul? Soul is always intimate. One. Deeply connected and linked to Hashem. No separation is possible. And therefore, if I can tune into that space within my psyche, I can really discover the answers to the questions. Because what he's trying to convey to us is not to teach me new information about outside of me, but to give me new lenses, to expand my horizons, to expand my perspective, to be able to look at myself and at my spouse and at my children and my grandchildren and at my life and at the world with a new perspective. It's a change that happens inside of me. You have books that talk about 
people's weaknesses and people's lies and people's falsehood and people being stingy and people who are going to get punished and the darker sides of human nature, the darker angels of human nature. And those are some very holy books. But the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov and the teachings of the Maga, the teachings of the Balatanya, generally the teachings of the Hashkafa and the Machshava of Chasidut was what? Not to focus on the negativity, the falsehood, but rather to accentuate, to tell a Jew, Ein oid everything is one with Hashem and you're also one with Hashem. And therefore you're beautiful and you're wholesome and you're amazing and you're incredible. And the moment you really, really get that, you have the answers to all the questions. Because all the questions in one way or another are a manifestation of my narrow vision of not seeing the depth and the truth of reality, the depth and the truth of my reality, and the depth and the truths of my intimate inner, inner soul, inner core, my divine, divine Hashem. The most important thing a person needs to be able to answer their questions is for somebody to remind them how holy they are. Somebody once said, what is love? Love is learning the song that is in the heart of another person and singing that song to them when they forgot it. And for me, personally, this describes something that I feel for me is such a powerful mission and calling. Learn the song that exists in another person's heart. That's what love is. And sing this song to them when they have forgotten it. And that's what the Tanya tries to do. That's what all of the Hasidic teachings try to do. That's what Yiddishkeit tries to do. Sing the song to the soul when it might have forgotten its own song. That's what a person needs. person has to know how holy they are, how beautiful they are, how good they are. Kirvas elikim litoiv. You have to be able to feel how close you are to Hashem always and how good that is. That you're never lonely. That even though you're angry and shattered and jealous and frustrated and annoyed and angry at the world, I got it. Yeah, the animal in me is trying to cope and trying to survive, and I get angry. Why do people get angry at their wife? You want to survive. Anger is a secondary emotion. It's not a real emotion. 95% of anger, 95% of times, anger is covering up pain. But it's much easier to say I'm angry than to say I'm in pain. If somebody says something to me, I get angry, and that way I feel that I'm macho, that I'm confident. I'm just dealing with my pain. But instead of being vulnerable and saying... I'm just in pain. It's much better and easier to say, oh, you're a crazy person, you're a sick person, I don't need you, get out of my life, I hate you anyway, who needs you? That way, I don't have to be vulnerable. I become righteous, the other person becomes evil and everything is good. But I'm really suffering. The apathy, the anger, the indifference is just covering up my misery. You can only be fulfilled in life if you're filled from fulfilled fulfilled, only the full can fill you. You can't get filled up from that which is empty. That which doesn't really exist, that which doesn't have substance, can't fill you. Anger won't fill me, addiction won't fill me, binging won't fill me, gambling won't fill me, alcohol won't fill me, websites won't fill me, unless you're watching my classes on the website. WhatsApps won't fill, won't fill me unless you're watching my clips. Just joking. WhatsApp won't fill me. What's going to fill me? Fulfilled. You can only be filled from that which is really full. That which really exists, which is the divine. Kedusha. Kirvas aleikim litoiv. My dearest friends, so now when you ask me a question, how do I achieve happiness in times of craziness? I say to you, go into yourself. And you have to believe. If you could be a Rav, I can be a Kayan. This is America. This is Panama. We all live with old stories, who I am, who I'm not. I can't be happy. I am miserable. I am traumatized. I am angry. And I say, let's start a new page. Let's open a new chapter in our life. Yes, it is crazy times. And crazy times require crazy measures. And the first form of craziness should be 
Get out of your old patterns. Get out of your old addictive ways of thinking. Get out of your old dramas and narratives. Some of us live in the same foxhole for decades and decades and decades, repeating the same narrative again and again. Go crazy and get out of it. The Gemara calls it shtustik dusha. There is insanity that is crazy and there is insanity that is holy. The Gemara says in Ksuvis, page 17, but one of the greatest Talmudic sages of Zaydi, he would go to the wedding. He would go to the wedding and he would dance. He would take a hadas, a myrtle, and he would dance in front of the bride. They said, Ahanile, at his funeral, they saw a special pillar of fire. Ahanile, shtuse lesava. This, the Talmud says, holy insanity, holy craziness. When you live in a time of extremes, you have to find the holy the holy insanity, which means to go out of my limitations, to go out of my old patterns, to go out of my old stories, to break out of all of the psychological and emotional shackles and to start dancing with Hashem and to start dancing with life and to start dancing with my brothers and sisters and to start dancing with my spouse and my children and to start dancing with my soul. We say every morning. I want to share with you a marvelous Kabbalistic insight into the story of this in the story of this week, Parshat Vayishlach. And it gives so much perspective. And so much inspiration. And so much encouragement. In Parshat Vayishlach, Yaakov meets Esav after 34 years. Yaakov is afraid that Esav is going to kill him. And he sends him up gift, and he prays, and he prepares for war. But in reality, everything changes. When Yaakov sees Esav approaching, what happens? He goes and he bows down. He bows down to his brother seven times. Until he gets close to his brother and Esav runs to him. He hugs him and he kisses him and they both weep. And everybody bows down. Leah bows down with her children and Bila and Zilpah and Yosef bows down and Rachel bows down. And Yaakov and Esav have this beautiful, warm, brotherly encounter filled with love and passion. Rashi brings one opinion that at that moment there was a genuine love from Esav to Yaakov. He kissed him with all his heart. And the commentators struggle with this. Why did Yaakov bow down seven times? Seven times. He bowed down all the way. Prostrated himself seven times. He calls Esau my master eight times. Adoni. Eight times he calls him my master. If you read through parts of Yishlach, Go speak to my master Esau. Esau is the master. And Yaakov is the Eved. Yaakov is the servant. Mordechai would not bow down to Haman. Lo but Yaakov bows down seven times, and Esav, he calls his master eight times. How do we understand this? Some of the Midrashim, some of the commentators are very harsh. They blame Yaakov Avinu, they feel that this was an error relative to the level of Yaakov Avinu, and there were penalties as a result of this, and there were the eight kings of Edom who reigned before, Lifnei Melech Melech Lebnei Yisrael, because of this. But I want to give you another perspective. This perspective comes from a sefer, a book called Torat Levi Yitzchak. It's a marvelous Kabbalistic work from Reb Levi Yitzchak. Reb Levi Yitzchak Shneeusin, the rabbi of Dnepropetrovsk, passed away in Kazakhstan in 1944. And listen to his insight. The word Yitzchak, the name Yitzchak, has a numerical value of 208. Yitzchak, Yud is 10, Tzadik is 90, that's 100. Ches is 8, and Kuf is 100. So together, Yitzchak, Isaac, is 208. That makes eight times the name of God. The name of Hashem is Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, Yud, Kei, Vav, Kei is 26. Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey is 26. Eight times God's name, eight times 26 is what? 208. So Yitzchak is 208, eight times the name of God. Put this on on hold. Let's go to Yaakov. What's the numerology of the name Yaakov? Yud is 10, Ayin is 70, that's 80, Kuf is 100, so we already have Yud, Ayin, Kuf is what? 180, and we have Bet, 182. Yitzchak is 208, 8 times the name of God. Yaakov is 182. 182 is 7 times the name of God. 
the name of Hashem is 26, 7 times 26 is 182. Yitzchak is 208, 8 not, 8 times the name of God. Yaakov is 182, 7 times the name of God. Wait, what happened? Was there a decline from Yitzchak to Yaakov? Isaac had the name of God 8 times, 8 times, and Yaakov got lost. One of God's names got lost. Yaakov only has it seven times. How did this happen? And who gave Yaakov the name Yaakov? Yitzchak. Vayikra lo Yaakov, not Rivka, Yitzchak. Yitzchak knows his name that he got from his father. Has eight times the name of God and he gives his son the name seven. The name Yaakov, one, eight, two, or seven times the name of God. Something is off. Something is strange. You want to bequeath everything you have to your child. You want your child to become even greater than you. That's what every father wants. We're jealous of everybody, but not of our children. Ooh, what's the answer? You guessed it. Yaakov has a brother. He has to share. What's his brother's name? Esav. What's Esav? What's Esav? Ayin is 70. Sin is what? 300. And Vav is 6. So Esav is 376. What is 376? One time God's name, 26, and seven times the word Tameh, impure. Tameh is, Tes is nine, Mem is 40, Aleph is one. How much is that? 49 and one is 50. How much is seven times 50? 350. How much is 350 plus 26? 376. Esav is one time God's name, plus seven times Tameh. Yitzchak is eight times God's name. One of them went to Esav, plus seven times Tameh, impure. So Esav is 376. And Yaakov, 182, is only seven times the name of God. Yaakov understood the secret of his brother. Esav had a split personality. He was spiritually schizophrenic. He was a Jewish boy. He came from Yitzchak. He came from Rivka. The Gemara in Kiddushin, page 18 says, Yisrael Mumar. It's not like Yishmael. Yishmael was born from Hagar. She was Avram's maid. But Esav was born as a twin to Yaakov. He was the son of Yitzchak and Rivka. He had very, very powerful potential. He had very, very deep holiness. He had the name of Hashem, but it was covered up with seven layers of Tameh, with seven layers of impurity. And Yaakov knows that healing the world will only come by healing Esav and healing the Esav inside of him, and healing his relationship with Esav. And that's why he has to get close to his brother. Not because he suffers from an inferiority complex, because he has to be able to help Esav find his own inner divine core, his own inner divine truth. So Yaakov bows down seven times, because each time he wants to remove another layer of tummy. He wants to get through to the essence of Esav. How do you get through to the essence of a child who's broken, who's traumatized? You have to get close to them. If you judge them, if you criticize them, if you come down hard on them, they run away from you. You have to be able to tune into their pain. You have to be able to make them feel that you really love them and you connect to them and you appreciate them and you understand them. You have to go down to their space. You have to prostrate yourself. You can't remain on your high horse and say, hey, 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 hey. it's not going to work. You got to go down seven times, seven tummies. Seven tummies. It's also connected. Gemara says in Saita, Yud, Yud Aleph, that when Avshalom was killed, Avshalom rebelled against David and he tried to kill his father and Avshalom was killed. You remember when his hair was hanging in the tree and Yoav not beheaded him and David called out the word, David exclaimed, Bini, 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 eight times, eight times. And the Gemara says, he took him out of the seven states of Gehenom and brought him into Olam Haba. Seven layers of Tameh. Bini, by connecting to him. So Yaakov goes down seven times. Each time he can penetrate another layer of Tameh until he can find that 26, the name of God in Esav. And that's why you'll see Yaakov throughout Parshas Vayishlach always says, Hatzileini na miyad achi miyad Esav. Save me from my brother, from Esav. A whole time he calls him my brother, my Esav. Then when they meet and they embrace each other, after he bows down seven times, and they kiss each other, and they cry on each other, and they hug each other, what happens suddenly? At this point, it says, Ad gishto ad achiv. He bowed down until he came to his brother. Suddenly he's not called Esav anymore. What happened? He lost his name? Esav was not Esav any longer. Esav was his brother. You see, Esav is 376. That's seven times Tameh, with one time God's name. But after the bowing down seven times... 
He went deeper. He went into the 26th. He went into God's name. He helped Esau come back to himself at least a little bit. Now you might say, eh, but everything changed back to normal. Esau left and Yaakov left. Yaakov planted seeds at that time that one day the whole world will be rectified. All the Esau's will be able to reunite with Yaakov. One day we say, All the nations of the world will unite to declare the oneness of God. Not only that, the Gemara tells the story in Masechet Avodazara, page 8, that when the Romans began to rule over the Holy Land around 200 years before the destruction of the Second Temple, after the Romans conquered the Greeks, and they ultimately took over Judea and Eretz Yisrael, they made a peace treaty with the Hashmanayim, with the Hashmanayim, the grandchildren of the Hashmanayim of Hanukkah, in order to defeat the Greek army that ruled over the borders of Eretz Yisrael. And because the Hashmanayim helped the Romans, the Romans gave the Hashmanayim 26 years in which they can rule over Eretz Yisrael, which is the 26 years corresponding to 26, the name of Hashem and Esav, who was the father of Rome. Esav was the father of Edom. That's why Edom is associated with Rome and Esav is the father of Edom. In other words, this moment was planted for eternity. And in different generations it comes out until in our times and when Mashiach comes completely, when the whole world, the whole world will be repaired. What does this teach us, my dear friends? We each have the ace of inside of us. We sometimes see the ace of in our loved ones, our children, or our friends, or our communities. And we see the ace of inside of us, you know, that wild kid who's out in the field hunting all day, who tries to fool his father. Yes, there are sometimes deep layers of tummy, but you have to be able to go down and enter into the space with compassion and reveal the Yutke Vofke, Hashem's name, inside. And then miracles happen. Then you see the light in yourself, you see the light in others, and you could begin to celebrate life with a different attitude. So where does change happen? Change doesn't happen there. Change happens right here. Change happens in my glasses, in my lenses, in my eyes. From tonight, when I open my eyes, how do I look at myself? How do I look at my spouse? How do I look at my kinderlach? How do I look at Hashem? How do I look at life? How do I look at the world? I could look at it from a very narrow and restricted and traumatized perspective, which is normal, you're human. This is the perspective of my little animal trying to cope. Nefesh Bahamit. Or I could look at it from the perspective of my nefesh alakit, from my divine soul. And then, the reality may not change right away, but everything changes. Because my perspective changes. I come from a place of inner wholesomeness, inner empowerment, inner vigor, inner stamina, inner joy, inner confidence, inner holiness, inner dignity, inner divinity, inner resilience, inner faith and inner shleimut, inner wholesomeness. And that transforms everything for myself and for everybody around me. Thank you very much. Yes. The question of all questions. I think it starts off with small things. Let me give a few practical ideas. Number one, it has to do with the moment you wake up. The moment I wake up, before I take the phone... (laughs) before we start texting, WhatsApp, watching videos, emails, getting stressed, before. The moment you wake up, there's a special meditation that Jews say. And it's a game changer. I thank you, Hashem, the Eternal King, for giving me back my soul. Your faith in me is so great. It sets the trend for the day. You're thankful for your neshama. You acknowledge that you have a soul. You're not a random mutation. You're not an accidental error. You didn't just wake up and you're going to run to work to make a couple of dollars and eat breakfast because you're hungry. You're on a mission. You're You're a soul. You're not just a body. They used to say we have a soul in the body. Hasidim say, no, no, no. We have a body in the soul. You're a soul. The body is an aspect of the soul. The body is inside the neshama. Not the neshama is in the body. The body is in the neshama. You're a soul. God sent you down here. And you're a piece of Him. You're a representative of Hashem. That's the attitude, how the day has to begin. Now, go brush your teeth. Go take a shower. Get dressed. Don't look at your phone yet. A little later. Unless it's an emergency. Then when we say the blessings in the morning, it's so important just to take a few minutes, even if you're stressed, to take a few minutes, just to meditate. Gratitude. Focus on the words. And you'll see, you're going to connect to that part of you. That's number one. 
Number two, it's important to be able to have somebody to talk to in our lives about what is going on in us. We say in the Mishnah, You need a mentor, you need a friend. Whether it's your spouse, whether it's a professional, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a good confidant, a good colleague. But we need somebody with whom we can be open, in whose presence you could think out loud and just express what's happening. Work through your pain and be vulnerable. Because the way to, get, the way to penetrate to the core is through midat harachamim, through compassion. Remember, Yaakov is compassion. Judgmentalism does not help you get to your core. It doesn't open you up. It closes you up. You, we see it all the time. When I'm judgmental of people, they close up. When I'm judgmental of myself, I close up. I just feel guilty. To have compassion on other people, you have to have compassion on yourself. Be able to have compassion for what's going on and express it without judgment, but be vulnerable. When we have these conversations often, we could then see the blockages. We can open ourselves up to the blockages. Now, this is not an easy process. Sometimes there are a lot of layers you have to work through, but you have nothing to fear, but fear itself. The third thing I would say is a very practical, in a very practical way is help other people do this and you will get a lot of that achieved by yourself. When we reach out to others, that energy comes back to us. I mentioned before, what is love? Learning the song that exists in another person's heart, and when they forget it, sing it to them. Every day, try to sing such a song to one soul. Reach out to somebody. Inspire them. Believe in them. Invigorate them. Before I go to sleep, I want to ask myself, Did I do a favor to one person today? Help them become closer to their true goodness, to their hope. Give them hope, give them encouragement. Try to do such a thing every day. And the results are often magical. Those are three steps to begin with. You want me to read the next question, Rabbi Lane? How about when people have financial difficulties or health issues, what advice can you give them? Listen, the first thing is, I'm so, so sorry. It's, it's, it's hard, it's painful. And everything that we discussed here does not take away from the fact that people are often struggling and struggling with serious issues and we have to acknowledge it and we have to pay tribute to it and we have to empathize with it. We can't make everything dandy and rosy. Somebody who's struggling with health issues it's a serious challenge. And somebody who's struggling with financial issues, it's a different type of a challenge, but it can create tremendous stress and anxiety. And I think there's two things that have to happen. Number one, it's important, of course, to be able to ask ourselves, what is my mission now? What does God want me to do right now? What is my purpose in this situation? Sometimes we go into denial. We fight it. We don't want to accept it. We make believe it's not happening. And it comes back to haunt us. We get even more frustrated. It's important to be able to look at the situation, to be able to accept it, to be able to embrace it and say, okay, this is what I'm dealing with. And now let me try to breathe in and infuse some meaning into this, some purpose into this. What can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? How can I use this situation to become a better person, to live a more meaningful life, to live a more truthful life, to live a more authentic life? Now, it's not always easy because I may have had other plans. I was planning to be a multimillionaire. I was planning to win the lottery. And I didn't. Not like Chaim. It's true. And there is what's called denial. There is anger. There's bargaining. There's grief. And they're all very normal. And then there's acceptance. Like really looking at their situation and saying, okay, this is the reality. I'm not going to run away. I'm going to try to make it as best as I could. I want to get healthy. I want to have a good job, of course, always. But right now, don't despair and don't surrender into denial. I want to embrace the situation and see what I could learn from this, how I can grow from this. Maybe this is an opportunity for my relationships to become much deeper. Maybe this is an opportunity for me to be much more honest. Maybe this is an opportunity for my prayer, my relationship with God to be much more powerful. Maybe my situation with my children or with my spouse can be mended. Maybe my situation with my family. A lot of good things can happen, but I have to always be able to look for the meaning. And don't allow depression to take over. Reb Simcha Binim of Pshischa said, when we lose our money, we lost nothing. Money comes, money goes. When we lose our health, we lost half. Our soul could still be healthy, but the body is suffering. But he said, when we lose our courage, 
we lost everything. Never ever lose your courage. Never lose your resilience. A positive attitude is so important for healing. You know, with this coronavirus, besides the issue of quarantines and the pandemic and the health and everything, people are panicking. And their immune system is compromised. You have to live in an environment of simcha. Simcha doesn't mean that everything is dandy and lovely and perfect and rosy. It's not simcha. Simcha is not naivete. But simcha means there are things I don't understand. I don't have to wrap my brain around reality, but I'm always living. Kirvat elokim litov. I'm living in the infinite embrace of God. And therefore, I can maintain my spirits and maintain my perspective. And that itself... That faith, that bitachon, we once had a Panama class, remember about trach, good, thinking positive, that itself puts you into another mode. You attract good things to yourself. It's easier to find a job, and it's easier to get a raise in your salary, and it's easier to maybe create a new venture, or go out on a new venture, or invest in a new company, or find new things. You know, when you wake up in the morning and you operate from a place of positivity, you have much more opportunity. Your brain is thinking in a different way. It exudes a different type of energy even without quantum mechanics, certainly with quantum, with understanding of quantum mechanics. Watch the wires. So therefore, when a person is in a state of joy and exuberance and happiness, you could say, say hi to everybody. <laughs> say hi to the Jews in Panama. Come come, say hi to them. Hi. <laughs> That's my Avram Aisha. When we're in a state of simcha, of positivity, you'll see that new choices come up because you're in a more expansive place. You live in a, in a larger world. Question. Is there... Any value to be happy even a little bit a day, even if most of the day I will feel overwhelmed with my problems. Oy, you're such a beautiful Jew. I love this question. <laughs> Is there a value of being happy a little bit of the day, even the rest of the day I'm going to be miserable? I say, listen, we take whatever we get. We take whatever we get. So if you're going to be happy a little of the day, good. Be happy a little of the day. But I hope that those moments are going to be contagious. And those moments are going to last longer and longer because you're going to see the difference. When we operate from a place of simcha, it's much better for our problems. Stop telling God how great your problems are. Start telling your problems how great God is. Next question. Thank you so much for learning our song and singing it back to us when we are forgotten. The deep and profound insights you provided us today is part of our song. What about someone who insults and abuses a brother? I had to cut ties with my brother because he insulted me and he abused me. I am sorry to say. Well, first of all, I'm so, so sorry. That is, that is very painful. To cut ties with a brother is very painful. And I know that even if at times we may deny it and say, oh, this brother is a, a nobody... A brother wants to be close to a brother. Trust me. I know, I know brothers who are not on speaking terms for many, many years. And you know what? They're not at peace. They have all the excuses in the world, but they're not at peace. Deep down, we miss our brother. I was at a wedding last week or two weeks ago, and there were two people at the wedding. Their fathers are brothers. They're first cousins. Their fathers have not spoken to each other for decades. And they were both a little tipsy at the wedding. And I hear one of them come over to his cousin. And they were never on speaking terms because their fathers drifted away. And he tells his cousin, with almost tears in his eyes, he says, my father misses his brother. Let's create peace between them. It was such a moving moment. These are both macho men, successful. They seem confident, powerful. But a family is not supposed to be separated. I'm sorry. Brothers have to be able to speak to each other. We can't always agree with each other, but family has to be separated. Now, I don't know the story with your brother. That's why I say I'm so, so sorry, because I see that you yourself are in pain. The only question I would ask without knowing any details is, is it possible to create some basic relationship, even if you don't become best friends in the world? And it's important, especially for the children. It's important for the parents. It's important for the other siblings. Even if you don't become best friends, can they reach a place where you have an amicable, workable relationship? Maybe you can have an open conversation with them. Maybe you can bring in a third person. Maybe you can go visit somebody, an arbitrator, a therapist, a rabbi. Maybe there could be some level of friendship, even if it's not so warm and powerful and the most genuine friendship. But I'm telling you, 
even a peace that is not, even shalom, that is not so thorough, is better than, 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 a, than a war, than cutting ties completely. So I don't know. If we're dealing with a dangerous situation or an ongoing abusive situation or a very serious traumatic situation, there are exceptions. But generally, I'm encouraging you as a brother to brothers, I'm encouraging you that if at all possible, try to go into a deeper place and find a place of reconciliation and forgiveness. If you can't, you can't. And I'm not judging you. There may have been very serious stuff done and I don't know. But maybe speak to somebody who's more objective, somebody who cares for you, but somebody who can challenge you. Maybe there is some way of, uh, of finding reconciliation, at least to some degree. At this point, I want to thank very much my dearest friend, Rabbi Ari Lane, for inviting me, Reb David, for arranging it and orchestrating it, for everybody who's here joining us, for the whole Panama community, from all the different communities of Panama who unite here to learn and study and grow together. Everybody who's joining us, it's a privilege to be here with you. I wish you bracha v'hatzlacha, ad dai, chazak chazak, v'nit chazek. Thank you very much. Till next time. Rabbi Jacobson, before we end up, just give us three thoughts of what lessons we can learn from this pandemic of encouragement. Three positive things in your, from all your experience. Yes, I I think number one, the pandemic, I think, challenged all of us to go deeper into ourselves. I think that is a tremendous opportunity. You know, they say the worst thing about a crisis is when you waste it. In other words, there was a crisis that befell our planet. I don't know God's cheshbonot, but God had this little coronavirus take over the world. And it, it challenged us to go deeper. Because before the corona, you know, we were the world conqueror. But it was traveling. We felt like we owned the world. We controlled the world. Uh, Jewish historian, Nuvalar, I gave out a book last year. Homo's Dias, man is God. You know, he said the next step is man replaces God. We don't need God anymore. <laughs> we'll double the lifespan. We'll live 150 years. And I think the, the pandemic, the coronavirus, it humbled us. It diminished our egos, our hubris, our arrogance. It helped us go deeper into ourselves to be introspective, to make a cheshbon hanefesh, to ask myself, who am I? Or as Yaakov told his messengers, he said, Esav is going to ask you, who, who do you belong to? Right? Where are you going? All these questions, Chidush Arim says, where are you coming? Where are you going? These questions, I think, have been asked by humanity in the last nine months, more than uh, what I remember in my lifetime. And I think that's very positive to be able to really reevaluate my life. Who am I? What are my priorities? What is real? What is real and what is fake? You know, when you see that a whole economy just collapses, that a whole world goes on lockdown, sports stadiums, malls, bookstores, businesses, industries, shopping centers, clubs, bowling alleys, amusement parks, universities, courthouses, Churches, mosques, everything, Lahavdul Shuls, everything closes down. It's like, wow. <laughs> no terrorist attack, no third world war, no nuclear war. A little tiny virus. You could fit three, 3.6 billion of those viral particles on the eraser of a pencil. Closes down the whole world. Makes us humble. That's, I think, one good thing. The second thing is, I think it gives all of us an opportunity to work on our marriages and our relationships with our children. Everybody is home more. You could spend more time with your husband, more time with your wife. You could take walks. You can really work out your relationships in very unique ways. Don't waste this moment. It doesn't always come. Very special time to work on your marriage, to really become a couple that trusts each other, that connects to each other, to iron out your differences and your relationship with your children, to eat with them, to fabring with them, to listen to them. Now, I know Panama is much better than New York. Here, a a family dinner on Shabbat is a miracle. By you guys, it's a little different. But still, each and every one of us could listen more to our children. is more, play more, have more fun, connect more. I think also a very, very special opportunity. And finally, I think the third element is our relationship with God. I think that, uh, I think that this is an opportunity for people to find God in a much more real way. You know, many of us were used to just going to shul three times a day, and you know, you follow the road. You daven with a minyan, baruchu, amen, yehesh which is amazing. 
But many of us now, in the last nine months, had to learn how to daven ourselves. Nobody is in the room, it's you and Hashem. There's no catching up to the chazan, there's no following anybody else, nobody looking at you. It's really you and yourself, and God. And you could talk to Him, you could connect to Him. I think it's a very powerful, powerful opportunity that we have to use. And finally, I would say a sense of unity. I think God gave us a special gift now that we can increase in Achadut Yisrael. I see much more Jewish unity now. Now I know, in America we have had divisive elections, Meshiga, and it's still not over, as you know, between Donald J. Trump and Joe Biden. It's Lebedek and Freilich. We had the riots and Black Lives Matter. It was a divisive time. But the first few months there was a sense of unity in the world. And I think underlying everything, there is an inner sense of unity, but I think the Jewish people experienced a rare moment of unity. Yes, I know not everywhere, and it's not perfect, and Israel has its challenges, and there are people who love demonstrating and rioting and throwing rocks, etc. But what I'm finding from all the... I've had hundreds of Zoom classes, hundreds, and lectures and seminars and shiurim with the whole world in the pandemic. Just this morning, this morning I had a 7.30 in the morning class to my regulars on the yeshiva.net, we have our 7.30 morning class, which we'll have tomorrow again on the Parsha. A little later, I had a class, especially for women, a woman's class. I had a class today from Melbourne, Australia. Melbourne, Australia and Sydney, Australia. I had a class today for Holocaust survivors in the JCC of Borough Park. And I had a class today for the University of Barilan, Barilan University students. We had a class and now I'm with Panama. <laughs> So we had Barilan in Israel, and Melbourne, and Sydney, and New York, and Borough Park, and now we end off in Panama, and then I go to sleep. <laughs> then I go to sleep. So uh, so uh, I take a drink and I go to sleep. Well, I have to have a mirror. What's my point? I want to tell you something I'm seeing. I'm seeing a lot of Jewish unity. I'm telling you. I'm seeing Jews getting together. We're realizing that the fights are stupid. Ashkenazim, Svardim, Chassidim, Litvaks, this Satme, that Satme, this Babiv, that Babiv, this Ge, that Ge, this one, that Chassidim, Litvish, Yeshivish, very Yeshivish, right wing, left wing, centrist, modern, more modern, this type, that type. Come on. So we disagree about a couple of things. We could disagree with each other, but we have to be here for each other. So we have disagreements, so what? I think Jews are feeling it more and more. Not everybody. I know there are fights. I know there are problems. I know there are challenges. But I think there's a consciousness of achadut that the pandemic has helped create because we realized that what unites us is much deeper and much more powerful than what divides us. Those are some thoughts that came into my mind now. Good night. Thank you very much, Rabbi. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.